in 2020, we passed minimum wage, a livable wage. In this last election, which you would think was the most contentious, we passed rent control in Orlando. And all of these things that you'd think are more difficult when you actually talk to people about where, where they're at on issues, they're with you. They just need to have a sense of who's best representing those issues when it's time to vote. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guest today is Ana Sofia Pelais, executive director of the Miami Freedom Project. Ana Sofia moved from a two decade long career in food and culture writing in New York to organizing in Miami, Florida around 2016. I asked her about what caused the switch, what's happening in Cuban and Latino politics in Florida, how her group is doing, and related matters. So, after a quick word from my sponsor, my interview with Ana Sofia Pelais with Miami Freedom Project. Check out the large, detailed, and high-quality political data graphic posters from Timeplots. Our visual history of the American presidency, for example, lets you see the Clinton, Bush, Obama, and Trump presidencies in full context. Timeplots Library includes visual histories of the United States House, the United States Senate, the Supreme Court, and the Democratic and Republican parties. Find them all at www.timeplots.com. Use the code BATTLEFIELD for a discount. So, Ana Sofia, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Sure. My name is Ana Sofia Pelais. I'm the co-founder and executive director of Miami Freedom Project. I was born and raised in Miami. And like many people of my generation, I had to go away from home. So I spent 22 years in New York. When I came back, the groups, the people that I had most connected with had worked on with the Obama administration in the policy of opening to Cuba. And that led me to getting out the vote in the Latino community through the 2016 Hillary campaign. And then when that went the way it did, you felt the need to stay in the space and stay active. At the time, I was a food writer, food and culture writer. I had published a cookbook, The Cuban Table, that had taken me from New York City to Every province of Cuba had published at the end of 2014. So I had every reason to expect that that's what I would continue in when I came home and I would just be closer and more connected to the stories I had been writing about up until that point. But I think the sense that you could be detached or just on your own path and not be connected to the community. And I think we all kind of lost that sense of security in, in 2016. Um, so I went into the space and um, political space and I haven't left. Well, I have to admit that you're the first food and culture writer that I've seen take an important role in the space, but that's probably just my failing to track food and culture writers enough. Yeah. Um, enough. <laughs> <laughs> tell me a little bit more about the family you grew up in. Were they a political family? I would say yes. I don't think there's an apolitical Cuban family. I think in either side, 
of the straits, whatever decisions your family made to stay or to go, your life is defined by politics. And that sense that, again, something that could feel very much beyond you was setting your path and can have a, from your perspective, a cataclysmic effect, impact on your life, and that you have to stay engaged and you have that awareness and you have that sense of vulnerability for yourself is something that it's ingrained in you. So on, I would say on my father's side, I came from a very artistic family. My great aunt was a very well-known Cuban painter. I had a great uncle who was a very well-known Cuban poet. So I think we had that sense of an artistic life and that it was possible. And I always grew up feeling that that was a path that I can take to be in creative field. I've worked in film. I became a food writer. And until fairly recently, those are the spaces where I felt most comfortable. On my mother's side, while they weren't political, they were in a kind of professional class, doctors, lawyers, very kind of steady, more grounded professions. My grandparents were very, always very vocal about politics. If you went to their happy hour or after Thanksgiving, Nochebuena, we were going to talk about politics and you had to, you know, we, we were probably on different sides of the spectrum. They were more conservative. I've always been on the progressive bent since I was a little girl. I remember one of my first conversations with my mother was saying that I just can't trust Ronald Reagan, but they were very conservative and we would have it out. And you knew that you had to, to have that conversation with them. You had to really know your facts. You really had to understand what was going on because they did. They read every paper. They watched every news, news newscast in Spanish and in English. They were always caught up. They were always had that awareness of what was happening in an opinion. So if you wanted to have that conversation with them, you really had to know what you understand your own position so that you can defend it. And I love that about them. And I think even if we would, we would have these hour long arguments and at the end we were, they were just happy that I stood up for myself. They were, they loved, they loved hearing from me. They loved that we'd, you know, hashed it out. There was always a sense of pride, even if we, we didn't end up, end up agreeing. We always, it was always a good conversation. The traditional go-to in understanding that is like an anti-communist conservatism, but was it mostly based on that for your grandparents or was it more broad-based or what was the source of that for them? I would say in their lives, in their experience, I think the sense that the left can go too far, I think was part of that. I do think that they were always invested in, in social justice in a private capacity in their faith community, in their community activities. It was always about who should help. It was never about whether or not you needed to help. And so their sense of people being disenfranchised or underserved, that was never a question. I never felt them stigmatize other people. I never felt them see money in any kind of aspirational term. They were always very grounded people. There were always people who were, there were people who served their community. But that sense that of what their experience was in Cuba and what those gov- that government represented and pretended to represent and putting them on the other side of an issue, I think was something that informed their perspective on which party represented them. And I think it was also a very different party. I do think they identified as Republicans, but I think it was a very different Republican party because we had these conversations and because I felt like the values were always ultimately the same. I wouldn't necessarily say that they wouldn't be never Trumpers now or that they wouldn't be appalled by what was going on or like many people I know in their generation. My mother's an Obama Democrat. She was a Republican most of her life and she 
changed later in her life when Obama was up for up for election. So I don't know that they wouldn't have continued to evolve politically. I wouldn't necessarily ever describe them as hardline. They were always fairly moderate centrist um, people who just really cared about cared about other people, cared about their community, and were really invested in in political ideas and policies. I noticed that you went to college at Barnard and that took you to New York originally. How was that experience and what did you study? I studied history with an English minor, so very practical. And it was it was a wonderful experience. I don't think I think my when I thought of where I would want to go to school, my goal was New York City. I had a very romantic idea of what that kind of urban existence would be growing up in very suburban Miami. So I, you know, I don't know that going to a woman's college was necessarily, while I saw the value in it, was necessarily the, the impetus for me choosing Barnard. It was just a, one of the really good schools in New York that I was applying to. But since then, I've really felt just how, how special and how unique it was, especially as we've seen, like everything else, this sense that we were going towards greater freedom, greater equality for women since we've seen that turn back, I really appreciated having that community of women and that experience of being in that community with women at that formative time. It's something that you you take with you. I've appreciated it more the more time passes. How did you get into the world of food and culture writing? Well, you know, like I said, I'd always been in creative spaces. I worked in independent film, um, mostly small independent productions, um, you know, with like very good small production houses that make these like prestige films. You'd have time off between shoots. So you'd have be working 80 hours a week for three months on a film. It would end and then you would have maybe two to three weeks before you jumped onto the next project. So you just, you know, you would have be able to have the chance to like make bread on a Wednesday, like try these things. New York does not have great Cuban food except for very few holdout restaurants that are good. I had to kind of teach myself Cuban food. So I started looking for my grandparents' recipes because they always, they'd always cook together. This was, this was on my father's side, not my political family, but my father's side. And I started researching their recipes so I could teach them to myself. And it became not just about cooking or the food or the technique. It became about the story. I just felt like I wanted to just immerse myself in it. And I thought, do I want to go into culinary school, go into a restaurant and that, on that kind of path. And I thought of my experience in film and you get invested, you go to something because you love the outcome, you love the product that comes of it, but the process, do you love the process the same way? And pr- the process of making film can be very automatic. You don't always get to be creative, even if what you're, you're all doing is towards a creative end. So I knew that if I were to follow the culinary path, it would be, it wouldn't just be about, you know, that experience of making the cake. It would be making that cake every day for days and weeks and months. And what I really loved was the story and the history and the discovery. So I decided that what I wanted to do was write about food and wanted to understand where it came from, understand the community that produced it, understand the history, everything about it. That That's how I wanted to become involved with it. You've spent 22 years, you said, in New York City. No one could spend those 22 years and not become acquainted with Donald Trump, who was making himself a well-known figure in in that town. What was your perception of him before he started to go after Obama? And what were you thinking as he kind of made his improbable 
run for the presidency? Yeah, I don't think I thought of him at all. I think I had this awareness of him as, I think, very representative of New York. I think people like to describe him as a kind of outlier of New York, but I do think he's very much a product of New York. He's that New York id, unchecked by anything that we think of as elevating the culture. Everything we think of as wonderful in New York, if you could just ignore all of that, then you have Donald Trump. And it is that same kind of unchecked narcissism, egoism that New York also, in, in, in many ways, also enables. I don't know that I had any awareness of Donald Trump outside of the, the kind of the worst example of a certain kind of New Yorker. I'm sure I watched some seasons of The Apprentice, but I was never that engaged. I thought of him as a reality star that, you know, some people liked as a kind of almost like hate watching or guilty pleasure, but it wasn't something I I was necessarily ever drawn to. And then you saw in his in his attacks on Obama just how, you know, how far he was and the the ugliness of it. The race element that he brought into it, these challenges of Obama that went beyond politics. You really saw the character of this person or the lack thereof. Like so many other people, I didn't think he had what it took. I underestimated how many Americans would identify with him. I was, you know, as surprised as anyone that he was elected. You said you got involved with the Hillary campaign in 2016. What were you seeing? What was bringing you into that? How were you politicized around that election? When I was in New York, mostly my sister became very involved in the the Obama policy towards Cuba. So that was the community of people that 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 I knew that were involved in politics and many of them were in DC or they were in New York had left Miami and were doing this work and then we all in many ways came back to Miami for different reasons. But as the the policy towards Cuba had changed, we were almost, you know, kind of reconvening in Miami. I think with the sense that there was more work that needed to continue in that space. And this this coincided with the campaign. So, you know, they reached out and said, we're going to be doing some Latino GOTV. Do you want to come out and be a part of it? And I thought, okay, yeah, two weeks. I was inspired by Hillary. I was inspired by the campaign. Very excited to have a woman president. I was still felt relatively new to Miami. I would still tell people when everybody asked me where I was from, I'd be like, oh, I'm from here, but I lived in New York. I always had to explain one or the other the same way in New York. I had to be like, oh, I live in New York, but I'm actually born and raised in Miami. Like, so I was still in that kind of in-between space. So I thought, okay, this is how I'm going to understand, you know, get to be out here in this community and understand it and get to know it and have this experience of being involved in a campaign. Well, Miami-Dade County has shifted notably over the, the Trump years, really, into now, and not in the direction you're pushing it, how do you understand what's going on there? And Trump seems to be part of a really serious effort by Republicans to attract Latinos to their side. How do you understand what's going on there? I can understand why somebody would say, okay, well, there's been this shift, right? There was an opening towards Cuba. The Cuban-American community was opposed to it. They had a Republican president was nominated. It solidified that position and their ranks grew. I think it's much more complicated. And it was Cuba, but it wasn't Cuba. And when this work was happening, this change of policy towards Cuba, 
I, I saw this community having conversations that it needed to have. I saw it open to something new. It wasn't by any means decided. It wasn't an all yes or an all no. It was a kind of, okay, let's see. And I think people were very open to that change. And I think many of the people who have come more lately from Cuba, we think of them as post-1993, those numbers are always coming. There's always a steady flow of people coming from Cuba into Miami. I do think that they have a connection with Cuba, that they need a policy in place that does allow them to send remittances home to have that more kind of fluid contact with people from home. There are many ways still sustaining that family, those friends at home. So as far as the policy, the U.S. policy that supports that, there is much more acceptance of that than I think from the outside would appear. So are they anti-authoritarian? Are they anti-communist? Are they against the government of the Escanel? Yes. Does that mean that they're all going to vote against someone who's going to make the remittances possible that are keeping their grandparents alive? No. I think the kind of saber rattling that you see in Miami that's very much directed at the Cuban government is very much about their feelings, their positions against that government. It's not always going to be a referendum on U.S. policy. Even if they're conflicted about having to have remittances, having to have that access point to Cuba, because they, they have concerns about it propping up the Cuban government, they also don't have another choice. We were open to the Obama policy. You did have people who, again, had never wanted to see any kind of opening. There was a thaw there. You know, we were seeing that opening really start to bear out the promise that 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 came with it when Obama sat on the stage and said to Raul Castro to his face, we have a monument to what Cuban people can build and that's Miami. I do think you had a sense of the community being, if not completely invested, ready for that change to happen. And then the election went the way it went. So, you know, we had a change in policy. And while people were, they were okay with something being different, they weren't necessarily opposed to a harder line in Cuba because they don't like the Cuban government for many good reasons because of what the Cuban government does and what the Cuban government perpetrates against them and is still perpetrating against their family and friends in Cuba. So it became this kind of thing where people have this assumption or they project, oh, this is what they're voting on. But that's not necessarily what they're voting on. I don't think you can assume that every Cuban American necessarily believes that the U.S. government is the one who dictates what happens in Cuba or doesn't happen in Cuba. We know pretty well who's responsible for what we've been living for the last 60 years. So that sense that that's what we're voting on, I think it's a very easy narrative for people outside of the community to say like, oh, yeah, they're just they don't like Cuba. They don't you know that's a leftist government. So they're going to they're going to vote right. I think it's much more complicated than that. In 2016, everybody came out for Hillary. Hillary had a very strong lead in Miami-Dade. Obama came very close to winning the Cubans. Hillary, I think it was it was more measured, but this felt like the stronghold of never Trumpers. So you had a lot of Republicans that Trump was that bridge too far. You had a lot of people who were supporting Jeb Bush, people who had other people that they were more palatable to them as Republicans. So, you know, and then we had 2016. And I think like many people, you saw those positions hardening when you don't have that opening, when you have a kind of confirmation, that comfort of like, well, this is what we've always known. This reversal against Cuba, those the reversal of 
making remittances harder, making travel harder. That was more familiar. It wasn't new. We were used to it. You're kind of used to working around those restrictions. But again, it's not necessarily why you're voting for president. At the same time, you had a Democratic Party who wasn't necessarily investing in the infrastructure to make sure that they were present in that community, make sure that they were had continued engagement. In part, because maybe because we thought, all right, we have such a strong lead now, it's enough to start building. Our Cubans are never going to accept us because of the socialism question. So let's just work with everyone else. But the issue is also when you're not messaging to Cubans, there's a lot of other Latinos that you're also not reaching because Colombians are concerned about authoritarian governments and leftist governments. Venezuelans, obviously, when you're messaging to Cubans, they're they're also listening and they're also trying to get a sense of what that's going to mean in Venezuela and Nicaragua. You have so many diaspora communities that are looking for that messaging to understand where the U.S. is going to stand towards their countries. So in wanting to not address the Cuban issue and thinking, all right, that's a lost vote. They're never going to like us. Let's just focus on everyone else. You're not investing in the, the broader Latino community. In many ways, it is Cuba, but it's not. It's in thinking that Cuba is the only problem you have, where I think, you know, we kind of get fall into like a vacuum of information where we're not really seeing any progress in Cuba because it's kind of beyond the U.S., but we're also not getting regular communication. We're not being spoken to as Americans, as a persuasion vote. It's very complicated down here. Everything is complicated, but I believe you. Yeah. Um, What's the founding story for Miami Freedom Project? So we worked in the 2016 election. Um, One of the people who actually brought me into this space, Patrick Hidalgo, had been with the Obama administration, very intimately involved in the the Cuba policy. He was the one who said, all right, we're going to work for a couple of weeks. We need you out here. So... 2016 happens and we're like, okay, well, we're going to work on local elections. We're going to be very focused on every seat, everything that's a potential win. So we worked on, on, on local municipal elections. And then we got to 2018 where we got very close. The governor's race was extremely close. We were able to turn some seats. It felt like the momentum was at the very least going in the right direction, but we were always falling short by very little. And I would say in that governor's race, that's where we saw the first the first decision to say like, all right, let's try and do this without the Cubans. Let's, you know, we have a very sm- small window to introduce this candidate. The candidate at the time, Andrew Gillum, wasn't as well known. Let's just, you know, go for the people that we know we have. Let's, let's, ha- let's mobilize the people who are already with us and make sure that they turn out. And then that's going to be enough to get us over. And the socialism question, the Cuban question, it's too complicated. It can backfire on us. So they made a very strategic decision to not go after the Cuban vote, and they fell short. We were kind of coming at it from an insider-outside perspective. We were largely people who had spent most of their professional lives outside of Miami, but had come home and cared about this home and really wanted to see it continue on the path that we saw the possibilities in 2016. We wanted to get it back on track there. And we saw that there was this disconnect where people thought, oh, it's Cuba. You can't talk to them. It's like, no, you can talk to them about healthcare. You can talk to them about transit. You can talk to them about climate. There's all these other issues that they're receptive to, that they're open to, that actually impact their lives that nobody's communicating with them with because they think, oh, it all comes down to Cuba. So we said, all right, let's have a different conversation. Let's bring people into the room, smaller gatherings, eight to 10 people, not a networking thing, really having a conversation around an issue so that we can bring people together that might not cross paths otherwise. 
identify a way of talking about an issue or understanding it that's really going to help us in how we communicate on progressive issues to this community with the hope that you will be able to see some movement in a positive direction when the elections come. Parallel to that, though, we had also a steady disinvestment into the party. So Miami Freedom Project isn't working with a party where C4 we hope that that infrastructure is there. And as we build, we work towards this movement. You would hope that if we're able to create a better conversation around an issue, that's going to be reflected in an election. And there's a larger apparatus that's able to take people in and make sure that they're able to take that action. But we saw just a very steep decline from 2018 to 2020 to now 2022 of investment in the party infrastructure in Florida. So that's where I think we are now. We've engaged with the community we continue to have those conversations. We've had that steady programming. We lost Patrick very unexpectedly in 2020. But because we had this community around us, we were able to continue and grow. And I think we've seen that sense of our community that's seeking to identify with us. But now we're looking for what's that larger apparatus, what's that larger infrastructure that you can direct people to. And that's the work that you know is ahead of us in Florida. Your group, how big is it now? How, where are you finding funding? What's the organization look like from the inside? We're, it's, it, we're you know, small board. Um, and we have about, I guess, four people working with me right now, and on con- mostly on like contract basis, programming basis. Um, we've been doing a lot of work on disinformation. We've been doing a lot of work on voter mobilization, on leading a Cuban table where we had all the groups that are identified as Cuban, focusing on the Cuban community. And then we were working in coalition with people who are working on the Colombian space and the Mexican space and the Puerto Rican space. That's the cycle that we're coming out of now. And then looking ahead, as difficult as it is, because that divestment in Florida is significant and we're a small group, so you're having like a smaller piece of a smaller pie. That is, I think, a concern for every progressive group in Florida. I think every political group in Florida is feeling the pressure of you know, the results of the last election and what that means, maybe not having the party infrastructure that can is, is set up to continue and to keep building. So there are a lot of questions right now that we're all giving ourselves a minute to think about so that we can start doing the work in January. I would say for Miami Freedom Project, our focus is what it's always been, starting from the ground up. I think while many people have seen this drop off in the Latino vote, we were always kind of starting from a very low <laughs> threshold of like a 20%. I think everybody's kind of come to a level where we're very comfortable because that's where we start from, of not having a Cuban vote that's uh, that's as present and as 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 meaningful and as impactful in, in the progressive space as we would like it to be. Of the progressive groups, there's less of a drop-off for us with this last election. We're still in the space of we need to, this is the same group we have, we just need to continue building with it and seeing how we can expand from there. It's a little hard for me to quite understand. Like we lost those two races by a hair in 2018. And we lost the presidential both times Trump ran nationally. Not close enough. But to give up on a state with so many members of Congress and so, and so much precedent setting in the legislature and, and things like that. I mean, part of this seems linked to the Governor DeSantis and his ability to dominate politics after winning that close election. How do you see him 
and his political skill, his political positioning, his aspirations from your vantage point? Well, I would agree with you that there's too much to lose in Florida to give up on it. And when you compare the 2018 election to 2022, the drop off um, without wanting to get too specific on the numbers, because there's still some variants. I think it was like in the $60 million range. And then we're in like the two to $3 million range. It was significant. I didn't understand what you just, those numbers. What Are you saying that there we went from putting $60 million in to $2 million in? It was comparative to that. So I, I, I don't have the actual numbers in front but of you're me. You're saying there was a dramatic drop in what kind of dollars going where? In dollars coming from national democratic organizations into Florida. So the investment in Florida. But it feels to you like there was a dramatic drop. It was dramatic. Yeah. It was a very... And in your specific group, are, are you funded out of national dollars by some people? I'm thinking specifically of the party, the, the kind of investment that national donors made to the Florida Democratic Party um, and what they were able to deploy because of that. Um, it's very hard to compare last midterm election to this one because it's the drop off in investment and the Democratic Party was so significant that you can't really say that they ran that race. They had basically enough to keep the lights on and not much more. So it's hard to compare it because they just thought that they couldn't win. And so they put money into the close states. Exactly. It's too expensive a state, I think, is the theory to fight it out if you're going to lose for sure. Exactly. So I think there was, you know, now, of course, now it's everybody's like, well, it was a kamikaze mission or it just wasn't something that was viable for this for this go around. Well, well, say a couple words about how you perceive DeSantis. What concerns me most about DeSantis is that when we, we see the results of the midterm elections and they wanted to understand why the red wave didn't happen. And I was very happy to see that there was this rejection of MAGA politics throughout the country. Just great. And in understanding that, they cast the people who were successful, DeSantis, Governor Abbott, as people who came just up to the line of where the President Trump's position is, the former president, without crossing it. So, you know, they said, all right, well, if you were a Republican politician who fell short of denying the results of the 2020 election, if you were in a state where people felt that abortion was, despite bans or restrictions, there was not going to be an outright ban, then that, the red wave, that held. So in those states, we had the red wave that we would expect, but not in these other states where you had people who were all in with Trump endorsed and were running on election denialism. And to me, that's very dangerous because I do believe that Governor DeSantis represents a greater threat to democratic institutions than Donald Trump because he's very effective. He's very good at pushing policy and legislation through that does really undermine our democratic institutions. For instance, in this last year, our congressional black districts were halved, and it was because the already perfectly gerrymandered map <laughs> that the GOP legislation had come up with, and that wasn't favoring Democrats, but also wasn't a complete washout, was rejected by the governor. And they rejected the legislation. Legislature accepted that, and they 
pass the governor's map, even though, again, it was contrary to a referendum that had passed. He pushed the line even harder there, and he picked up the seats that really represent the difference. Yeah, and the GOP legislature fell in line against their own against their own legislative purview. So I think that's where DeSantis is really a very is someone that we really need to take very seriously in all of the policies that he's passed in the last year, in Don't Say Gay, in his actions against immigration, in his actions against the vaccine. Even now, he's impaneling a grand jury to investigate vaccines. There's an ideology there that really drives these policies home. In that sense, he's been more effective than Donald Trump. So I think any national organization, if they do care about immigration, if they do care about LGBTQ rights, if they do care about reproductive rights, if they care about gun reform, something that's being discussed now is if the governor is going to back permitless carry, which they're trying to pass off as constitutional carry. So I think in any kind of progressive issue, he's really willing to take it to this extreme hard position. Why do you think people are receptive to that? What is it about how he portrays it or, I mean, a lot of these things you've mentioned, I, I don't innately think would necessarily be persuasive to even a state like Florida without the right salesmanship or the right angle or something. What's going on there that that is not hurting him, but maybe helping him? I'd say in the last two years, it was very hard for any group to present a viable alternative. When you would see the polling that was going out, it was always, do you like or do you dislike DeSantis? It wasn't, do you like this other person? What is this other person representing? We didn't have a candidate that the opposition was coalescing around. We have a very late primary in Florida. So Charlie Chris, who was a problematic candidate from the beginning, he was very well known, but you know, not somebody that you can get very excited about. He didn't start really campaigning until August. So even that opportunity to present this viable alternative to to the governor was very difficult. So we had a lot of messaging around these issues. And I think people did identify there. And I think, for instance, in Miami-Dade, people are very much against this idea of permitless carry. Those numbers are in. Or when you see on, on, on abortion, on road. That isn't something that people support, but there wasn't enough of an identification with what the alternative is. So I think that's where we saw that apathy. That's where we saw that drop off. So it wasn't that Democrats were voting Republicans, that Democrats weren't turning out. The light bulb moment was, you know, when I think about when you're talking to voters and they would say, well, you know, who's Val Demings? Or it wasn't even that they were for or against. They just really couldn't even get their minds around who this person was. There wasn't that presence of the alternative candidates on the Democratic side that they can feel passionate about or they can feel invested in. It wasn't so much that everyone was so pro-DeSantis. It was a great deal of apathy and inertia on the Democratic side. Without an infrastructure, without a party that could really counter that and make sure that people were registering, that people were turning out, that people were mobilized. All of us that are kind of in it together in the opposition to what we're talking about on the national and the state level. We can only have a limited impact, a small group, an individual, a larger group. They're big forces at work. What is your aspiration with your group? What are you trying to do and how? During our GOTV time, 
we did what we could to be out there. And I think in that very short period, you did see, we saw a lot of growth. We saw people who, you know, maybe we had our first event with a handful of people. And then we really saw people because of all these things that you've described feel like, okay, what's going on? What's happening? Why aren't people turning out? Why is the energy so low when we're seeing these issues that impact us all? So we really identified that need to build in this community we're going to do is continue to focus to bring people together and break out of those those silos that we all we all live in. So really identifying how we can start with one small gathering and how it can expand from there so that we can really get a sense of where this community is at by having those conversations, by understanding how people are feeling about things, having that conversation with the person who is maybe against Trump, but more receptive to DeSantis, understanding what makes them more likely to see DeSantis as a viable alternative. We launched in March of 2020. So you can imagine it was a launch and a shutdown. But now I think there needs to be a very lived presence in these communities and in these communities where people have written off. When you have a city in Hylia, working class, high Obamacare enrollment, um, you know, who's doing, how are we doing outreach there? How are we making sure that people are hearing from us outside of the election cycle. And this is where I think a space where I I feel there's more value because once an election comes, every conversation you're having becomes essentially it's transactional. It's very much understood that if you're talking to me now, it's because you're trying to get me to take this later action. At this point, we bottomed out. (laughs) There isn't any kind of immediate aspirational goal that we're all reaching. It's really just about, let me understand you. This is where I stand on things. I want to hear how you're feeling about it. Let's have this conversation and let's see how we can move forward. But have it be in a way that you're identifying a community and you're expanding out from there. So you're building from the ground up. So our focus would be having more public facing events where we can have that intake and not just have it be people we already know, but have it be people who we need to know and people who we need to understand and be in relationship with and have that direct our action, have that direct our messaging, have that direct our campaigns, which are, are going to be largely issue-based because that's that's where we need to see the most growth. In all of these kinds of election cycles that we've talked about, ballot initiatives We've been consistently progressive in, in Miami-Dade and Florida. In 2020, we passed minimum wage, a livable wage. In this last election, which you would think was the most contentious, we passed rent control in Orlando. And all of these things that you'd think are more difficult, when you actually talk to people about where, where they're at on issues, they're with you. They just need to have a sense of who's best representing those issues when it's time to vote. Do you feel outgunned when you look at what's happening on the other side in the communities that you work in? Are you seeing a lot more going on? Yeah. If you compare what the investment is, it's very different. If you think about being outgunned, when you think about, you know, your capacity to, for an ad buy with the resource that you have to put out your message and have it reach as many people as possible. Yes. I think that investment is there. You know, the progressive side is always going to have the challenge that we want to really do the work. And I think if you only had to think about a message that's going to move people and tell people what they want to hear, 
then yeah, you're always going to be a disadvantage when you're trying to think of not just what people want to hear, but where you can deliver, where you can see a project through, where you can actually connect a policy to making a person's lives better. That's that's harder work. So what we have to do is always going to be more of a challenge. When something happens in Cuba, when something happens in Venezuela, we have a flood of politicians that are willing to kind of come here and say all the right things. That doesn't mean that they're able to implement any kind of policy that helps people either in those diaspora communities or affects positive change in in Venezuela or Cuba. There's no accountability there. So yes, that's always going to put us at a disadvantage when we're thinking about, you know, it would be much easier if we can just like say what everybody wants to hear and not worry about being accountable for it afterwards. But then, you know, we wouldn't be Dems. Are you discouraged? I'm feeling like a sense of that you might be. If you are, how do you rest yourself out of that and lead people forward in the direction you want to? Oddly enough, I'm not. I'm not discouraged. I think because Miami Freedom Project, when we started, it was about stepping outside of the election cycle and just having a conversation on the issues. What my organization does, not what the Florida Democratic Party needs to accomplish, not what larger progressive groups have to accomplish. It was always about saying, all right, this is what happened what do we need to do from here? We're in a better place now because, again, the election almost becomes a distraction um, to having that conversation. So in that sense, I'm not discouraged in how we're going to continue because this is our lane. That's always where we are. What is it that you need and how can we have a better conversation about this? So in that sense, I'm not discouraged. I do think that it's going to be a long process of rebuilding when I think about the larger progressive infrastructure, the larger democratic infrastructure that needs to be rebuilt. And that in some senses, certainly out of my my hands, and I think any one progressive organization, any one Dem club can really do, it's going to have to be all of us in our own capacities working together. So I think the rebuilding is going to be a long process. But yeah, I mean, you know, but I you don't give up on, you don't give up on anyone. You don't give up on yourself. You don't give up on on your, your city, your state. We're not engaged on these issues because you're progressive. You're doing it because you think it's what's right and you think it's what has to happen. You're not going to stop feeling that way because you feel like it might not have this, there might not be this larger perfect outcome that you you would like to happen. You're still going to try. You're still going to be saying what you say and meaning what you mean and needing to see things go forward in, in a positive direction. So what's keeping you in politics rather than pulling you back into food and culture or something else? I just think there's so much left to try. I think there's so much to do. You know, and even these conversations that, you know, we've been having this sense of like, oh, I know who those people are and they're never going to change. I don't feel that way because I'm with these people. I hear these people. I hear the conversations. You see the conflict and you know that given given a better alternative, given someone that they can, you know, feel inspired by or feel that they're they're being spoken to and they're having a real conversation and being understood, I do feel like there's a lot of progress that can be made. If I wasn't seeing that, if I wasn't, you know, walking out of my house and seeing somebody give me a thumbs up because they see our signs up or having a conversation with somebody you know, at the dentist's office that is really as as bothered and upset by what they see happening at the state level as I am, I would give up. But I'm here. So I just assume that there are other people like me here. And we just need to find each other and support each other and see how we can go forward. Anything else you want to say? I think if anything, certainly since 2020, you know, the sense that anything can change at any time 
how fragile it all is and how quickly things can move. If if we don't really understand that and internalize that, um, then we haven't learned anything. So we have to just always have that faith that things can things can change again. And that if we're all kind of invested in the process and what we want to see happen, we're going to see that movement forward. Well, good to talk to you. Good speaking with you. That was Anna Sophia. She's at MiamiFreedomProject.org. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at GreatBattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found. The Great Battlefield is now part of the Democracy Group Podcast Network. Visit democracygroup.org to learn more about other podcasts that cover democracy and civic engagement. You can also help me by leaving comments and good ratings on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere, and by sending me suggestions for great guests to nperlman at gmail.com.